Midnight in Karachi with Mavish Murad on tour.com. Today, Emily St. John Mandel joins me from New York, where she's back recovering after a tour promoting her latest novel, Station Eleven, which has been a finalist for the National Book Award, the Penn Faulkner Award, the Clark Award, and was on the long list for the Bailey's Prize as well. It's been on more best of lists than I can remember, and it is a lovely, quiet little book about a huge catastrophe that destroys the world and leaves a troupe of Shakespearean actors trying to tell their stories in a new world that has emerged from the apocalypse. Emily, welcome to Midnight in Karachi. Thank you. Thanks for interviewing me. Now, you've spoken about Station Eleven as a sort of a, a love letter or a requiem to the world that we live in, this incredibly wonderful, terrible disaster of a world we live in. And so you didn't you didn't focus on the immediate aftermath of the pandemic that wiped out most of uh, the world we live in in Station Eleven. You set your post-apocalyptic story in the post-post-apocalypses, as it were. Um, this was an interesting choice to move towards a new culture, if I can call it that. I think that's a fair way of putting it. It seems to me that the overwhelming majority of the post-apocalyptic novels that I've read and the post-apocalyptic films that I've seen are set in the immediate aftermath of a complete societal breakdown. And I very often love those books. I really love The Road by Cormac McCarthy. But as I was setting out to write this book, it seemed to me that that territory had been very well covered by multiple other authors. And to me, it was just more interesting to set a book in, as you say, the post-apocalyptic era. So not so much that immediate aftermath of horror and chaos and mayhem, which I assume would occur, but which I also assume would not last forever, at least not everywhere on Earth. So to focus not on that, but on the new culture that begins to emerge 15 and then 20 years down the line, that struck me as a more interesting way for me personally to approach the idea. I personally found this choice particularly interesting because of its sheer truth. For some reason, I never thought of it this way before Before you brought this up in Station Eleven, I mean, we don't want to imagine the post-apocalyptic world because that's not nearly as interesting or as dramatic or as frightening as what's going to happen immediately after the fallout at the end of the world. That's what people do. That's what humanity does. We move on. We live. We carry on being human after any disaster, after any terrible event, great or small, personal or political. I should have recognized this better than most. I mean, I live in Karachi. Um, But who is to say that we don't have interesting stories then? that we won't have interesting stories then when things have settled, as it were. Are there any more stories in the world of Station Eleven that will be told? Do you mean will I revisit it in subsequent books? Or stories or graphic novels or other forms of fiction? I'm very interested in in making a graphic novel, but I don't think that it would be set in the world of Station Eleven, the novel. I think it would be the graphic novelization of Station Eleven, the comic book. So the, uh, the comic book within the novel. I love the idea of working on that project. You know, I am often asked about sequels to Station Eleven, which makes sense. A lot of people have read it. They want to know what comes next. I sort of feel like I've said everything I wanted to say about the end of the world. um, It is a depressing place to spend a lot of time, you know, over, uh, over the period of two and a half years or whatever it was exactly that I was working on this book. So on the one hand, I do feel that there are an infinite number of stories that could come out of this world. You know, I did focus very narrowly on a strip of the Michigan Lakeshore in the Midwestern United States, the territory through which the Traveling Symphony wanders. And I really didn't pay any attention to the entire rest of the world. 
which was really a conscious choice on my part. What I was thinking about was how extremely local our worlds would become in the aftermath of such a crisis that we almost take for granted now that I can go online and see what's going on in Karachi today. Um, you can see what's going on in New York. We can check each other's weather. But to imagine a world where there would really be no way to know what the rest of the world was like, to know what was going on 100 miles away, let alone on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. That was fascinating to me. So it was a very narrow focus. There are an infinite number of other stories that I think could come out of this setup that I've created in Station Eleven. But I don't think I want to write them. I think I've spent as much time as I want to in the end of the world. Maybe in another 30 years' time, we'll franchise them out like Victoria Andrews, uh, you know, VC Andrews stuff. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. Or if anybody wants to go crazy with the fan fiction, you know, be my guest. Yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah. really, that's really interesting that you say that about stories being localized, because ultimately you're right. That's what will happen to society when you have that kind of a global breakdown. You will become insular. So there will Absolutely. be, as opposed to a global society that can keep a track of what's happening anywhere around the world, we'll end up with these tiny little pockets. Exactly. Uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating and unsettling to think about, isn't it? It really is. But so tell me, where did the premise for Station Eleven emerge from? Was there a single idea or a single image that began it all in your mind? And about the comic book that you mentioned, the comic book Station Eleven within the novel Station Eleven, I love the story within the story aspect of it and how telling that is. Did both those things emerge simultaneously? That's a good question. And thank you, by the way. Um, the overall story of the novel emerged for me before the story of the comic book. So my starting point for this work was partly just that I wanted to write something very different from my previous three novels. And to be clear, I was very happy with the way my first three novels turned out. But they were generally categorized as literary noir. And as much as I love that style and that genre, it seemed to me that if I continued in that vein indefinitely, that I would eventually be pigeonholed as a crime writer. And although I have an enormous amount of respect for crime writers and crime fiction and very much enjoy that style, the thought of being pigeonholed as anything was profoundly unappealing to me. I like the idea of being able to write whatever I want and my publishers being open to that, which has so far been the case. I feel extremely fortunate. So as I was thinking about what my next novel would be, it seemed to me that it would be a good moment to go in a completely different direction, something that's in no way influenced by noir. So something that I've been wanting to write about for a while was what it means to devote your life to your art, the costs and the joys and pleasure and burden of that. I really like film and theater. And so I thought, perhaps I'll just write a very quiet novel about the life of an actor. And what I was originally thinking was that it would be something without a great deal of plot, just a sort of character study about a Shakespearean actor in present-day Canada. I was imagining one of those very sort of scrappy, underfunded theater troops moving from town to town, uh, perhaps in Ontario. But there was something else that I had been wanting to write about for a while, which you alluded to at the beginning, that idea of the love letter uh, written in the form of a requiem which is that we live in a truly extraordinary time. I mean, I stand here talking to you in Karachi on the other side of the world, and things like that are possible. It's, um, you know, it's, we have electricity. You can walk into a room and flip a switch, and the room is flooded with electric light. Water comes out of the faucets. Our rubbish is taken away from the curb. You know, if you call the police, they'll generally show up. Um, these are incredible things that we completely take for granted. Um, Things like cell phones in the same vein. 
uh, the ability to enter a series of numbers into a handheld computer that results in a signal being beamed up to the satellites and back down to Earth. I think we take these things for granted to the extent that we almost don't notice them anymore. And that was something I wanted to write about. And it seemed to me that an interesting way to write about these things would, would be to write about their absence, to imagine a world in which all of these details, this whole apparatus of technology and civilization, to imagine a world where that had all fallen away. So I decided to keep my original idea of this traveling theater company, um, but set it in a post-apocalyptic landscape. So that was, that was my sort of starting point for the book. And then for the comic book, that largely came out of my character, Miranda, I was, who exists, of course, in the present day world. I was thinking about who she was as a character, and I had a fairly clear sense of her from the beginning. She was somebody who'd graduated from art school had found it difficult to find a rewarding job and found herself in a somewhat boring administrative assistant position with a lot of time on her hands. I thought of her as being a very, I guess humble would be the word, um, not attention seeking. Somebody who practiced her art for the sake of practicing her art without any eye toward publication or any expectation that anybody else would ever see it. I was thinking about what her art should be and I decided it should be graphic novels or comic books, really just because I love the form. I think it's an exciting way to tell a story. So I have her creating the Station Eleven comic books. And, you know, those comic books, they had a couple of, the value was sort of multifaceted for me in this novel. Through the comic book, which has a parallel narrative of displacement and disorientation, which ties in very directly to the situation of the people in the post-apocalyptic sections, it was possible to say things through the comic book that I think would have seemed quite cheesy, you know, if I tried to say them in the novel. So in the comic book, I can have a character say, I stood looking over my damaged home and tried to forget the sweetness of life on Earth. Or, we were not meant for this world, we want to go home. Those are things that I couldn't really have a character say in the novel itself. But I could have a comic book character say them, because the rules in that form are a little bit different. And then also, purely from a technical aspect, it seemed to me that given the complexity of the structure in this book, the way we move back and forth in time between the present day and the post-apocalyptic era, and between multiple points of view, it seemed to me it would be a good idea to have a couple of objects that acted as through lines in the story. So objects that we see in the hands of multiple characters, both in the present day and in my fictional future. So in the book, it's the comic books, and then it's also a paperweight. So yeah, that was sort of, that was a long-winded way of <laughs> saying how it all came together. Well, I, for one, am really glad you went with the plot part of things. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been such a boring book, as I was originally imagining <laughs> Was it? Were you imagining it as now when you think back, what you had imagined at first for it to be? Would it have seemed very boring compared to what you ended up with? In comparison, probably. But then, you know, you read books by absolute masters of literary fiction sometimes where not a lot actually happens in the plot. Right. Um, you know, consider a book like Brooklyn by Colm Tobin, who I think is one of the absolute best writers in the English language. A young woman moves to Brooklyn, visits Ireland, decides to stay in Brooklyn. That's the entire plot. But it's brilliant, and I couldn't put it down, and it was absolutely riveting. 
So there is something in the idea of a novel that doesn't have an enormous amount of plot, that's very inward focused, I suppose, uh, focused on the characters, but is also completely gripping. I think writers who can pull that off are incredibly impressive. And I'm not sure if I'm there yet. Um, I like to think it would be possible for me to write a book like that, but I have been very plot focused so far. I think that's a good thing. Um, I look at people like Margaret Atwood, who are introspective in a great many ways, but also write really solid plots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, my, yeah, right. She's like yeah, an my, ideal meeting point, I think, for both those things. I think you're right. I also think about Donna Tartt and her novel, The Secret History. Right. Um, there is something to that. You know, what I have always aspired to do in my own work is write books with hopefully a high literary quality, or at least an emphasis on language and the beauty of language and rhythms but also the strongest possible narrative drive. And that has occasionally pushed me into genre. Or actually, I should say it's always pushed me into genre. My um, my first three novels were generally categorized as crime. And my third novel is up for the Arthur C. Clarke Award in science fiction. Yeah, you know, I guess that has been my ideal. I do very deeply admire the authors who can write gripping novels without a lot of plot. But I have always tried to do both, both the plot and the literary quality. We could talk about which genre Station Eleven fits into or which genre your earlier novels had fit into or why. We could talk about if genre tags make any difference, if they're just for where to put a book when it comes to marketing or it, you know, in a bookshop. Station Eleven, as you <coughs> mentioned, has been nominated for the Arthur C. Clarke Award, which is categorically a science fiction award, but it's also been nominated for literary awards like the National Book Award. Let me ask you instead, how is Station Eleven a book that only you could have written and whether your journey as a writer was sort of leading you up to something like this for the last few years now? Oh, that's a great question. Nobody has asked me that before. And, Yay! Um, yes, right. And I've done 55 events for Stational. Yeah, to tell you the truth, I wonder if most books aren't books that only the author could have written. It's just, even if you're following, well, I suppose unless you're following an incredibly formulaic, uh, well, formula, um, you know, we just bring so much of ourselves into these books that although none of the characters in Station Eleven are explicitly autobiographical, I do bring in autobiographical elements, particularly in the characters of Arthur and Miranda, who are from the very small island on which I grew up in British Columbia, Canada. I think probably for those reasons alone, it's uh, it's a book that only I could have written exactly as it stands. Um But, you know, returning just for a moment to the idea of genre, I read a wonderful piece in The New Yorker about six months ago by Joshua Rothman, I believe the writer was. And he made what should be an incredibly obvious point, but somehow isn't, which is that, of course, books can be more than one genre. And I found that to be such a lovely and expansive way of looking at the question, because genre is so often a marketing decision. You could even say always a marketing decision. And the lines are so ambiguous what makes a book literary fiction versus crime fiction versus sci-fi? Can it be more of those things? Can it be more than one of those things at once? And what Rothman argued is that, of course, it can. It can be science fiction and literary fiction. And I very much enjoyed, since I read that piece, thinking about books in those terms, that it doesn't have to be A or B, black or white, you know, a thriller or sci-fi or literary. It can be all of those things. Where did you grow up, the small island off the coast of British Columbia? Um, it's a tiny island. In real life, it's called Denman Island. 
In the book, it's called Delano Island because I wanted freedom to change a couple of details without getting 150 corrective emails from readers. Um, So, yeah, Denman Island, British Columbia. It's approximately the same size and shape as Manhattan, but with 1,000 people. Wow. uh, Yeah, it's incredibly beautiful. It's forest, essentially, rocky beaches. It's much less remote than you might imagine. It's only a 10-minute ferry ride to Vancouver Island, which is enormous and has multiple towns and cities. So to get to the nearest town, it's a 10-minute ferry ride and then about a 25-minute drive. So really not that far out. You know, it's incredibly beautiful. Um, I still think it's incredibly beautiful. I was desperate to escape (laughs) as a teenager, which I think is often the case with kids who grow up in very small places that... You know, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, isn't it? There are people who love growing up in these small places or love living in these small places. And they deeply value the sense of community and knowing all of their neighbors and all the rest of it. The flip side is that everybody knows your business. And I very much enjoyed the sense of privacy in living in a large city. You know, when I moved to Toronto to go to school when I was 18 years old, it was an absolute revelation to be able to walk down the street and absolutely nobody knew my name. And to me, at that moment in my life, that anonymity felt like freedom. So, you know, I've lived in very large cities ever since. Uh, New York now, obviously, is about as big as you can get in North America. Um, Yeah, but it was a lovely place to grow up. It's it's beautiful out there. It's interesting because you mentioned privacy. And my first thought, and you mentioned this later in in the same phrase, really, was that sometimes it's privacy and more often it's anonymity because you don't want to be known at all. Uh, which is not always the same thing. That is true. That's true. And sometimes if you grow up in a city of 22 million, you still want to run away. Yeah, I think the nature of teenagers is you really want the opposite. Yeah. (laughs) Whatever you have. But what did you grow up reading on this tiny town? Was there a library? How did you get a hold of books? Did your parents, you know, bring you things to read? Were you able to read anything you wanted? I was able to read everything I wanted, which for which I'm deeply grateful. My parents, I don't remember them ever censoring me. Um... My parents had a lot of books, which was interesting in retrospect, because these are not people with money. My father is a plumber and a gas fitter, and my mother was at home full-time until I was about 13, before she moved into what she does now, which is helping homeless women and victims of domestic violence. So not even actually a middle-class upbringing. We were pretty poor. But we did own an enormous number of books. I'm not exactly sure how in retrospect. And in addition to that, we did make a habit of going to the library. So there was a very small library in the island. Um, It it was tiny. So we would usually drive to the library in the nearest town on Vancouver Island. They stay there for a couple of hours and then leave with the maximum allowable number of books, which I think was about 14. So, you know, you'd carry these teetering stacks out to the car. Yeah, you know, it was wonderful. I spent an enormous amount of time reading. Uh, when I was a child and a teenager. I read I read a lot of science fiction and fantasy, a lot of literary fiction and historical fiction. I also read through an entire set of encyclopedias, I think, when I was 10 or so. Yeah, I was a voracious reader and it was a great environment. Is that vastly different from what you read now as an adult? It is somewhat different. I don't read very much science fiction anymore. I, I do very occasionally. There was a book called The Book of Strange New Things by, um, by Michelle Faber, which I think is absolutely brilliant, and I've been recommending it relentlessly for the past year. In general, I guess I, I go, I'm drawn more towards, I don't want to call, them, call it literary fiction, because that book I just mentioned is extraordinary in terms of its literary quality. 
drawn more toward books that aren't sci-fi, I suppose, or that aren't fantasy. Yeah, I try to read a fairly wide range, but I would say 90% of what I read now is contemporary fiction. Do you have any particular favorite writers you go back to again and again? Someone asked this on Twitter, actually. They wanted to know if you had any specific influences or favorite writers you reread often. You know, it's interesting. It's almost two separate questions. I feel like the writers who have influenced me the most aren't necessarily the ones who are my favorites at this moment in time. Because when I, if there's any one book that influenced me more than any other, it would be The Executioner's Song by Norman Mailer. So I, I wrote my first novel, Last Night in Montreal, and there were moments, I think, when the prose was a little bit self-consciously pretty, which I think is probably a pitfall that a lot of writers fall into with their first novels. In between my first and second novels, I read The Executioner's Song, and the clarity of that prose was absolutely revelatory. It has an incredible simplicity to it, sort of lucidity, which changed the way I write forever. I was much more concerned after that with writing in a more pared-down, uh, simple style, I suppose. So The Executioner's Song was my biggest influence. Um, I also have to point to The English Patient by Michael Ondaatje, probably for opposite reasons. I think that was the book where I first understood how beautiful prose could be. I read that book when I was about 14. And then other books that have influenced me, um, or other writers, then it sort of begins to bleed into my favorite writers. Um, Irene Nemirovsky, she was an incredible French writer who was killed in the Holocaust. And she wrote a book called Sweet Frances, which is an absolute masterpiece. Um, who else? Uh, Tobe Jansen, the uh, Scandinavian writer. She, I, I grew up reading her Moomin Chronicles, which were about these, if you're not familiar, about this, these sort of surrealist stories about, I guess they were trolls. They were these sort of quiet, gentle creatures who right. lived in the woods. Yeah. I was going to um, call them little colored things. I don't know what they are. Little colored yeah. things, yeah. Yeah, whatever they were. <laughs> Multicolored she, things, yeah. Exactly. But she also wrote some absolutely extraordinary adult fiction, which I didn't realize until the last couple of years. Um, I love Jennifer Egan's work, an American author. She wrote a book called um, A Visit for the Goon Squad that I just thought was extraordinary structurally and in terms of the prose. I could go on all day. <laughs> but yeah, those are, those are a few that come immediately to mind. All right. I have a few last quick questions, though, but you can't think about them too much. Okay. Go ahead. All right. A single play by Shakespeare that you choose to survive the end of the world. King Lear. That was quick. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Any particular reason? It's just know, your it's favorite. Just favorite. Yeah, it's just my favorite of the plays. All right. Would you have a Star Trek tattoo or a Shakespeare tattoo? I have no tattoos whatsoever. But would you have one? I mean, it's the end of the world. Come on, you've got to do something. It's the end of the world. Um, I would maybe get that survival as insufficient tattoo if the world ended, but it might take an apocalypse to get me to get a tattoo. Yeah. Just not really. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. All right, the last question comes via Twitter from somebody called Breezy Al, who says, what would your chosen profession be if you lived in the post-apocalyptic world of Station Eleven? That's a great question. I mean, it would really be nice to think that you could survive performing Shakespeare and or playing music. Yeah, I guess I'll go with that. If I could be a musician, that might be the best possible scenario. You used to be a dancer, am I right? You are right. Yes, that was my first impractical artistic career. <laughs> did you ever go back to that? I never did. No, I trained in it quite intensively. 
It was really all I wanted to do from the ages of about six through 21. And I suppose I just burnt out on it. I found when I was about 21 or 22 that it just wasn't fun anymore. So I began a very slow drift from dancing into writing, which I'd done all my life as a hobby. It's kind of the same thing. You're telling stories with words. You're telling stories with your body. It's true. That's true. I have to say, though, writing is so much easier. (laughs) Writers like to complain about the difficulties of the writing life. And it can sometimes be enervating and demoralizing like any profession. But I think back to auditions and I think the worst conceivable day as a writer will never be like a dance audition. You know, being in a room with 200 other women in skin tight clothes with a number pinned to your chest competing for one job. That's pretty much my definition of hell. So it's, uh, it's wonderful to think I'll never have to do that again. And you'll never have to do that after the apocalypse either. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But it does sound like you've got a new novel in that. that that's an interesting idea. Yeah, I am working on a new novel, but uh, not very far along yet. Can you talk about it? Can you tell us about it? Or is it all secret so far? I think I'm going to keep it a secret because, you know, it's a funny thing. The more you talk about a novel, the further away from it, from you it gets. You know, um, Station Eleven is almost abstract to me at this point. So, yeah, I think until the new novel's finished, I'll probably keep it to myself. Well, you're just going to have to come back and tell us about it when it's out then. I would be delighted. Emily, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for interviewing me. Under the Radar on Midnight in Karachi. Will Wilds joins me now to talk about his novels, the critically acclaimed Care of Wooden Floors and the recently Kitschies nominated The Way In, which is a strange story about a professional conference attender who's attending a conference of conference organizers. He meets a woman who leads him to believe that there is more to this cookie-cutter hotel than meets the eye, that perhaps it is indeed bigger on the inside. Is it speculative fiction? Is it slipstream? Is it weird? Is it gothic? It's intriguing, so what does it matter? Hi, Will. Welcome to Midnight in Karachi. Hi, thank you for having me. Now, tell me a little bit about The Way In. Where did this premise of a surrogate conference goer come from? Well, the the, the idea of his profession um, came because I, I originally because I wanted someone who attended lots of conferences. And so I was kind of reverse engineering a, um, a profession that would uh, involve us going to as many conferences as possible and um, came up with someone whose entire job was to attend conferences on behalf of other people uh, so they didn't have to go because uh, I wanted to create the sort of job that someone who loved hotels, loved conferences would would want to do, the sort of job they'd aim for in life. This is a bit of a departure from your first novel, Care of Wooden Floors. Yes, it is. I mean, um, on a... On a you know, fundamental level, but uh, I, there's a lot of care of wooden forces about a, a guy who um, is looking after a friend's, uh, you know, beautiful minimalist flat and uh, inflicts a very small quantity of damage on it. And his attempts to um, fix uh, that damage uh, lead to um, escalating catastrophe. And there's something pretty, uh, something pretty gothic in in that um, in that scenario. And and the the, the story. Um, uh, kind of, you know, um, o- um, openly references Edgar Allan Poe and, and uh, horror comics and um, uh, crime procedurals and things like that. Um, you know, so there's definitely a kind of a horror strand running through it, although it was never really kind of at the forefront of my mind while I was writing it. I think there's an undeniably um, gothic element in, in, in both novels. Absolutely. And this it's interesting to me, this concept of the gothic mixed in with, say, either a minimalist flat, a very modern minimalist flat, or a thoroughly modern busy hotel, all Wi-Fi and coffee and, you know, fancy machines of coffee and many guests. It seems incongruous in theory to put these things together. What did you have to do to make it work? Or how did you plan to bring about that feeling of doom, as it were, that's very much there in The Way In? I I mean, I I didn't really have to 
to do anything. I just made a conscious decision to to write a gothic novel that involved none of the kind of period gothic tropes. No creaking floorboards or, you know, bumps in the night or anything like that, rattling chains, but was um, 100% modern setting and the elements of horror within it sprang from that setting rather than being, uh, you know, uh, springing from some sort of, you know, um, ancient burial ground underneath it or anything like that. They they, they, they emerge from, from the Wi-Fi and from the key cards and from the... Um, uh, from the carpets and light fittings um, of that extremely modern setting. And I didn't, you know, the, the wonderful thing about it is, although it, it is associated with cliches, the Gothic is um, actually tremendously flexible. Um, I mean, it is um, a, uh, you know, a, a genre or, um, you know, a, a kind of um, set of, set of uh, uh, rules that basically just involves un- environment as a part of um, generating atmosphere. And it doesn't specify that that environment has to be a you know a, a, a crumbling house or a, or a, a, a you know a lonely castle or anything like that. It could be you know a chain hotel on a on a motorway. And uh, so I didn't you know have to work the Gothic very hard for it to fit very nicely. If you see what I mean, you know it was fine. And the modern hotel where you know the lights are on when you open the door and your name is up on the television and so on is 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 a firmly in the environment of the uncanny. It is full of things being done by un- unseen hands. It is full of, uh, you know, things that are curiously unexplained. Things that you know, you only have to shift the lighting very slightly to to see as being completely spooky. You know, completely bizarre and um, uh, unnatural. Uh, and and fundamentally, that rests on the fact that this is a place that is pretending to be your home. You know, which is um, absolutely at the root of the uncanny. You know, it is it is unheimlich. It is unhomely. Um, it is it is like where you would live but but not there not quite you know it, it has unique traits that are that, 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 that are unique only to the hotel um so uh, it, it is fundamentally an uncanny place and that made it um uh, an absolute treat to, to work as a as a gothic setting absolutely i was going to say that you know at some point that sort of old castle uh, on a high hill or the rattling chains as you brought up or, or that stuff might have been frightening but I think to a modern reader this concept of this hotel on the motorway with its matching paintings on every wall and you know that may be a bigger picture or may not be and those as you said the name on the television all the rest of it um, the person who sort of mysteriously comes in the evening and places a little note and a chocolate on your bed or whatever it may be I guess in the fancy hotels all of that is pretty creepy absolutely yeah no completely I mean the and the entire thing where um, you know you, you're, you're sent up to your room and you arrive and the music's playing and there's uh you know sort of like everything laid out for you and so on is 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 pure ghost story it's uh, it's it, yeah and like i said it's a fundamentally uncanny environment care of wooden floors got some really fantastic reviews it was really well received as i told you earlier we'd even been seeing it in bookshops all the way in pakistan but moving on from all that acclaim was that difficult did it make you nervous at all that second book syndrome uh oh absolutely <laughs> it was it was something that that, that that drove my desire to to write something very different um, I didn't want to just try and uh, recreate what happened with Care of Wooden Floors because I, I felt that that would be, you know, the path to becoming very derivative as a writer. So um, uh, my, my, that, that, that really kind of um, put, put, put some fire in my, in my plan to write something very different um, in, in kind of scope and setting and, and in, in its genre elements and so on. Now tell me, are you still editing an architecture magazine? How did you come into that anyway? I suppose that part of your life, your day job, as it were, has influenced your books in a lot of ways as well Com- completely influenced I- i'd say i think it's probably been the, the single biggest influence on on my writing um i, I was deputy editor of a, uh, an architecture magazine um uh, rather rather than the top 
job. But um, I, I mean, I still work in architecture journalism, so uh, you know, I, I haven't um, I haven't left it at all. I, I mean, I, I find it hugely valuable as a, as a field. The, the wonderful thing about um, architecture and design is it touches every other aspect of, of human life, and so it, you, you're, you're constantly learning about new things through the um, through the angle of architecture and design. Now, I, I read recently that you've stated your literary influences of people like Orwell and Ballard, both writers of what I would call science or speculative fiction, and yet, you know, many people would say, oh, no, no, that's literary fiction. I suppose at this point it doesn't matter. They're both firmly in the classics category now. But uh, of the two, if you had to pick one, who would it be? Oh, Ballard, definitely. Um, I, I remember saying Orwell as an influence at some point, but and I've read... I love a lot of Orwell, including his, his letters and diaries and things like that. Um, uh, but uh, in terms of actual influence on my on my work, it's it would be, it would be Ballard without a doubt. I mean, you know, he's he's among the acknowledgements of the second book, and I think uh, very few authors have had the same um, impact on me in terms of demonstrating uh, what what fiction could could achieve. Um, you know, what sort of um, truths you could expose about about the world in, in the manner of fiction and there are very few um, authors who kind of uh, you know demonstrated the, the scope of the speculative as well as, um, to, to shape literary fiction um, although I, I mean I must say that you know the kind of um, he's uh, an author who, who, who demonstrates the nonsense of many of these uh, genre boundaries um, <laughs> you know and I, I find um, a lot of the debate about uh, genre boundaries quite quite sterile. Um, if there was one Ballard book that you'd recommend sort of everyone everyone had to read one book by Ballard which would it be? That's incredibly hard to say. I, I think know, I to, I mean, but pick I, one. I, 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 you know, I, I think really, um, if I, it would have, I mean, my favourite. Let me put it that way: is is the atrocity exhibition um, right. still as a as a sort of like a a kind of um, you know human genome project for his novels in the sense that it contains the seeds of all the other novels. Really, it's a it's this remarkable sort of like tightly wound coil of DNA. Which uh, you know, from which you can you know take tissue samples that could turn into you know pretty much any other novel he wrote. Uh, it, you know, it re- really is the most e- extraordinary, difficult but phenomenal work of um, experimental fiction. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, um, you're, you're. I think um, I think I'd have to choose one of the catastrophe novels. I mean, um, not one of the catastrophe novels. Excuse me, one of the concrete novels, um, Concrete Island or uh, High Rise. Or yeah, I would pick High Rise. That would be my pick, uh, which might be a little more obvious. But when I first read High Rise, I was much younger, and I was at that point I was living in Karachi, and uh, it, the world of High Rise was like a microcosm for the city I grew up in. That little mm, world in yeah, that apart, in those apartment buildings, or that apartment block, whatever you want to call it, in that concrete block. Which turns into this horrible bunker of fears and paranoias and you know terrible violent things was basically my city, and it was very strange to me that Ballard was able to do that. You know, represent in a lot of ways a world that he may never have seen or known to people all across the world. Yeah, I, I mean, he's he's talking about something fundamental, isn't he? So, yeah. so it's um, uh, in in one respect, it's kind of it's not surprising. It's it's universal. It's it's kind of uh, I mean, one of the books it's most similar to in some ways is, is the Lord of the Flies, but with with right. adults and, and architecture. Um, you know adults in technological society rather than an urban dirt yes urban dirt as opposed to island dirt yes yeah yeah precisely yeah and it is it is the book that kind of um i think gets you know gets quickest and and closest to what he's trying to say in general thank you so much will for speaking to me today thank you Uh, 